Well, if we could open our Bibles to two passages, we'll read first of all in Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, verses 10 to 21. This gives a little of the preview of what happened right before this miracle we're going to look at. It says, He sent, Herod that is, sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard it, He withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. And when the multitudes heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he came out, he saw a great multitude and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, This place is desolate. The time has already passed. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets, large size baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate, aside from women and children. And then in John 6, I don't think you need to keep your place in Matthew 14. You turn to John 6, beginning at verse 1. After these things... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a great multitude was following Him because they were seeing the signs which He was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there He sat with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Jesus therefore lifting up His eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to Him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, 
So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus therefore took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. We began yesterday to consider the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that they are much more than just mighty works of power. They are that, but they're more than that. And they were more even than acts of compassion. Uh, The healing of the sick and such, there was more to it than that. They were acts of compassion, but they were also primarily signs. They were meant to teach us something, to direct us to who Christ is and to His character and what He's able to do for us spiritually. And when we understand that and begin to lay hold of that, then we can understand things like this, why He would have this changing water to wine as His first miracle. We saw yesterday that uh, there was a very special reason for that. He wanted to make an opening statement And that water that he changed to wine was not drinking water. It was the water out of those six stone water pots. No Jew would have ever thought of drinking that water. That water was there to do all this ceremonial cleansing and stuff that did not cleanse anything. And they were stone water pots because if they had been made out of earthenware, they would have been contaminated. But the stone water pots were used for this custom of purification, and it was that water that he turned into wine. So it was a statement that he was making, and um, it occurred to me as I was thinking about this uh, again last night or today, that there's even more to it than what we talked about, because um, this idea of Jesus you know, that he would accept an invitation to a wedding. And some people, you know, their idea of holiness is he wouldn't even have done that. But he came to this wedding to make this statement that, beloved, this whole deal of a wedding is a big part of what the gospel is. And he talks repeatedly about the bride and the bridegroom And John the Baptist is the friend of the bridegroom. And uh, he gives parables about the bridegroom when he returns and uh, all of those different things. And then ultimately, what's going to happen? There's going to be the wedding feast of the Lamb. So he's making a statement. Not only did he come to bring, to change the, the water of the old covenant into the new covenant and change the water of ceremonial religion into wine, but he came to 
have a wedding with a bride. And uh, this idea, you know, this this marriage supper of the Lamb and all that, I don't know. I saw a picture one time, somebody had a table that was just stretching out, out of sight, with all the places set. And it gave me a little feel, you know, what's this gonna, what is this going to be, I, you know? I, I won't eat of this, uh, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine again until I drink it new in the kingdom and so on. What, what all? This whole idea of eating and fellowshipping together. God didn't have to make us so that we would have to eat. I mean, it's an odd thing, isn't it? You take, you've got a hole in your body and you poke stuff in there. And <laughs> that's odd. But that, he's teaching it. God made everything He made, He made to teach something, you see. He made it for a purpose. He didn't just happen to come on the scene and find out that we had mouths and had to eat food. Right. He made us so that, and, and He even talks about, we saw this on Sunday, of eating His flesh and drinking His blood. And then this idea of a fellowship meal and us gathering together and partaking all of these things he's talking to us and this wedding feast once again with a with a bride and a bridegroom so what a you know the more you think about it what a fitting what an amazing miraculous divine thing for the lord to say this is what i want to say right at the start and that's what we looked at yesterday when we considered the turning of the water into wine. Life, abundant life. 120 to 180 gallons of life brimful and overflowing and surpassing anything that we've ever experienced before. Well, tonight then, I want us to go on and look at another of Jesus' miracles, and that is this feeding of the 5,000. And we've read Matthew's account and John's account because they supplement one another. You have to fill this in. I don't know how all this took place. Many times in the Gospels we have a perspective from one perspective and then it's filled in and supplemented from another perspective. And so there was evidently what happened was the disciples came and they said send them away. And this discussion arose and then he directs it to a couple of the disciples like what are we going to do? And so all this took place. But it, it... it is significant that this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, except the resurrection. This is the only one that all four record. And so it, we shouldn't take it lightly. This miracle is important. And before we begin, I remind you again, this is a this is a sign. God's saying something to us. He's teaching us. And we, John's Gospel makes it very clear. Uh, you look down in here in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs. So he said, well, Lord, that's exactly why they're seeking. No, he said, you don't really get what I'm saying in this miracle. But because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They were still on a physical level. But then a little bit later, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. You see, So he's making it very clear he's teaching more here than just them eating the loaves and being filled. So, now, this work was a mighty work of power. 
Um, but it also was a sign. And before we get into this aspect of the bread of life, we need to see that the miracle itself signifies things. The type of miracle signifies things. The miracle that we looked at last night, you would call a miracle of transformation. You had wine or water that is transformed into uh, wine. And the Lord is saying to us that He's able to do that. He's able to, he's able to take one thing and change it into something else. He's able to take Simon and turn him into Peter. He's, yeah. he's able to take Saul and turn him into Paul. He's able to take a thief like George Mueller and turn him into one of the most honest men that you ever saw in your life. And I could give you a bunch of examples and you could give me a bunch of examples. And the guy that's always late, he's able to make him the guy that's always early. I mean, it's, this is miraculous stuff. He's able to transform, but this is not a miracle of transformation. This is a miracle of multiplication. The Lord Jesus is able to take something very small and multiply it and make it grow. And that's the first thing we should learn from this miracle before we even talk about the bread aspect. God can use, this is point number one, God can use very small things to do very great things. And not only is He able to do that, He actually delights to do that. I mentioned Gideon the other day. <clears throat> Here he is. He says, he says he, his family is the least in Manasseh and he's the least in his father's house. And he's going up with 32,000 men against 135,000. That's four to one odds. And God says, you've got way too much strength for me to use you. Four to one odds against him. So God says, no, that's too many. You'll boast. You'll say my power has done it. So he cuts them down. He has all the faint-hearted ones to go back and he cuts them down to 10,000. Now the odds are 14 to one against him. And God says, no, that you still got way too much strength. I mentioned this the other day. If you're walking down a dark alley and there's 14 men coming at you, you don't feel very confident. God says, that's way, you're way too strong still. And he cut them down to 300, which is odds of 450 to 1. And God says, okay, now you're weak enough and little enough that I can do this and I can still get the glory. So you see where this is going. Or, you know, I don't have anything. I can't do anything. I'm too, are you weak enough? Are you weak enough for God to use you? Yeah. You see, we can't use our weakness and limitations as an excuse. God is able to take the smallest and weakest and the most pitiful things and accomplish incredible things through them. John the Baptist, you say, what can one person do? Well, one person can't make any difference. Well, you know what it says? The voice of one crying in the wilderness. The voice of one. And what's it say? Well, it says all the country of Judea 
was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. The voice of one. Think of the early church, 120 people, not a whole lot more than this. And they were stand, they they went out <clears throat> against the imperial power of Rome, the Roman Empire, and they were dealing with the religious power of Judaism. That temple had stones in it 50, 60 feet long. Power, this massive structure of corrupt religion. So here's imperial Rome here and, the, and, and corrupt religion here in power. Here's, here's the intellects of Greece. They're going up against that. The most intellectual people who ever lived. They posed questions that have never been answered philosophically. So here's this little group like this. Here we are. We're going to go out against the imperial power of Rome the intellectual power of Greece, the religious power of Judaism, and the absolute corruption of a place like Corinth. Yeah. And you're going to go yeah. and, you, and you worship this crucified Jew. You're going to go to Imperial Rome and tell them, now this Jew that was crucified is actually sitting on the throne of the universe and his kingdom is going to overthrow the entire Roman Empire. Yeah. You know what that would bring? Rounds of laughter. <laughs> but the thing is, it happened. That's right. Amen. As old Vance Abner said, people call their boys Paul and their dogs Nero. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's where we're at. Yeah. This little stone, you know, that hits that, that statue and grows into a great mountain that fills the whole earth. Ravenel said the early church had as much chance as a newborn baby left at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. But the power of God hey. upon these people. <clears throat> God can take little things, weak things, small things, and do great things with them. It reminds me of the story of the captain. He says, they, with his soldiers, he said, they've, they've got us surrounded, men. Don't let one of them escape. <laughs> That's the attitude. Yeah, That's the attitude <laughs> that we ought to have. Yeah. Amen. Well, <clears throat> think of the Lord Jesus Himself. God put Him at every disadvantage so that he could show his power in him. He's born, and there's no room for him to be born even in a proper place. So he's born in with the animals. And what's he going to, well, he's going to be a carpenter's son and he's going to live in this despised place called Nazareth. And he's never going to have an education and he's never going to write a single book and he's going to pick out his followers from a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. Yeah. And he's going to be crucified, the most <laughs> disgusting type of death. He's going to be crucified as a criminal. 
God says, that, oh, that's the kind of thing I can get some glory out of. <laughs> and he, you realize the Holy Spirit comes and opens your eyes to the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth is God. He's the I Am. You see the glory of God. You see the glory of God even in the cross where He looked the very worst, the weakest. That's the greatest display of glory that there is. Amen. Even our time is figured in terms of when Jesus was born. You know, what year is it? He changed all, totally transformed all of human history. And He shook the whole world. Well, may God help us. We always say what Andrew said in verse 9, but what are these? But what are these? We've got five loaves and two fish, but what are these? Matthew 14, the way he said it there, we have here only five loaves and two fish. But Jesus says, bring them here to me. So the question that comes up in this parable right away is, what, what do you have? What do you have? Say, well, I don't have much. I'm not handsome. I can't play the guitar. I can't play the piano. <laughs> I don't have a great intellect. You go on and on and on what you don't have. Yeah. What have you got? Now, this is, this is something, isn't it? Amen. The weakest. He, he says, whatever it is, I can take that and do impossible things with it. Amen. I can change that. I can multiply that. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing to notice. This is not a, a miracle of creation out of nothing. You've got to give what it is you've got that He multiplies. That's what He's... He, it, it's not a deal where he, he, he does it all. He says, you've got to give me what it is you've got. And I'll multiply that, but I'm not going to create out of nothing. It's scary to take that little nothing that I've got that seems like nothing. It's almost nothing. It is almost. What are these compared to this great multitude? And to give that to God and let Him multiply it. Well, that's the first lesson that we ought to get. Uh, before we ever even look at the bread, the other thing that we ought to get before we look at the significance of the bread is that the only thing that really matters in God's kingdom, the only thing that we absolutely must have is the blessing and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to have that. We don't have to have anything else. There's an amazing phrase here, if you're still in John 6, it says, There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Now that's quite a way to describe a miracle, isn't it? The place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. All said. And if you look back up above, it says he, he gave thanks and blessed it and broke it. So He put His blessing on it. He gave thanks. He looked up to heaven and blessed Luke 9, 9, the parallel passage in Luke 9 says, He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke and kept giving. That's all we need, isn't it? 
Amen. We need Him to bless and break, break us and keep giving. Yeah. Amen. And that, that, that breaking part can be painful. But you give, you say, here it is, Lord. And what more wonderful thing than for Him to look up into heaven and put His blessing on you and start breaking you and giving you out to people. To feed them. Not talking about just preachers. I mean, I went to a fellow's funeral and he was, you know... He was not in any way, shape, or form a preacher. But I went to that funeral and I heard one after another. One guy got up there. He said that 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 fellow he came and he he brought me a load of wood and unloaded that for me. They, they one one coworker after another was impacted by his life. Yeah. And he didn't have any so-called of these spectacular things. He just gave his life. He gave all he had. What he did, he gave himself to the Lord. And the Lord blessed him and used him. That's all we need as individuals. That's all we need as a church. We need only the blessing and power of Christ. We don't need a nice building. I'm thankful for a nice building. We don't need comfortable pews. I'm thankful these pews are much better than what I'm used to. And I'm getting old enough that it hurts. <laughs> but we don't need that. We don't need attractive youth programs. We don't need even we don't even need air conditioning. We don't need lots of fun and games. We don't need attractive personalities. We don't even need great preaching. We just need Jesus. There's a lot of times where God uses some some believer that doesn't say hardly anything. They say one or two words to somebody and God puts His power on that yes. and saves somebody through it. We don't need a music ministry. We don't need... How can I prove all that? Look at John the Baptist. Look at, look at his building. Look at his air conditioning. <laughs> Attractive personality, though. He didn't have that either, did he? <laughs> Generation of vipers. Who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> he didn't have anything except God's blessing. <clears throat> Brother Ravenel used to say, you never need to advertise a fire. And I, I remember one time I was at my sister's house. I was probably 15 miles out in the middle of nowhere, out in the country. And I came home uh, after spending time with them. And uh, I looked up in the darkness so I could see this glow. I thought, there's a, there's a building on fire. I need to get up there. Maybe nobody even knows about that yet. And I took out and started up there, and I kept getting closer and closer. And I found out it was in in the town where I grew up. I was still single at the time. And uh, I thought, something's on fire up here. I got up there, there were so many cars, you couldn't even get within a half a mile of that building. There's no danger of nobody seeing the fire. If the fire of God, if the power of God is present, Amen. There, there's no need to put out advertising. Amen. 
Say, I, I need more Bible knowledge. That's good. I need to read more theology. That's good. We need to try something different, maybe. But that, that's not what you need. None of it will be worth anything apart from the blessing of the Lord. And if you have His blessing and power, <clears throat> everything will be fruitful and accomplish something. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do all kinds of stuff. You can worry yourself out, but nothing will be accomplished. I remember one time we were trying to do an outreach on the campus, and I don't have a very good um, preaching voice for open-air preaching. I, I last about two sentences. It's always been weak, but it's even worse now. But we went, when this was years ago, we went up to the campus <clears throat> trying to do outreach, the college campus there where, where we live. And we got, and there was maybe five or six of us, and we got on the side by the side of a dorm, and we said, let's, let's sing a hymn before we start. I mean, it was the most pathetic it about it about discouraged me. <laughs> it sounded so bad. I mean, the world hearing that it was an absolute laughing stock. Pathetic. And I started trying to preach up to the side of that dorm, and and you know windows and people coming over, and pretty soon there was fifty students gathered around us, so mad they couldn't see straight, and. And God was helping to the point that they seemed like little children to me. I, there was no, you know, it's different. You can be harsh in the flesh. You can be scared to death in the flesh, but you can't have boldness. What the Bible has, where you love those people and you're not afraid and you can speak. That's what, just we need God. We need God. That's all we need. And they were gathered around me angry and I was able to, you know, to tell the truth to them in some measure and love them. And I looked around and there, there was Mona over there. There was a guy beside her in the grass on his knees praying. <laughs> I thought, what in the world's going on? Well, I don't think he was really converted, but it's an example of just God can take nothing <laughs> and do something. And all we need is His blessing and His power. Well, finally then, this aspect of the bread, the third thing to learn from this miracle, and that is the Lord Jesus can satisfy fully the deepest hunger of the human soul. Amen. Yeah. And surely if there's anything the Lord's telling us by doing this miracle, He's telling us that. The whole last half of chapter 6 of John, Jesus describes Himself as the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And just like we said about the wine all over the world tonight, people are starving to death. They don't, there's that emptiness. They don't know what's wrong. But there's that emptiness within. And they try everything that they possibly can to try to fill that emptiness. I mentioned Solomon telling all these different things that 
didn't work. I, I didn't mention specifically, but he, he goes into a bunch of verses. We won't look at them, but specifically he talks about sensual pleasure, luxury and riches, work he talks about, and wisdom and education. I mean, you're taking in a lot of stuff when you take in all that. Even your work, even there's guys that are trying to fill that hole by working. Yeah. Work, 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 work. He says all that labor just striving after wind, it didn't it did not feel satisfy. If you're a lost person, you're empty. Yeah. If you're a Christian, it's possible to start getting off track and trying to get satisfaction in something else and it won't, there isn't any. Amen. And we just got to be brought back to this. Jesus said, I am the true bread. Yeah. True bread. Says it more than once. I'm the true bread. Well, think about it tonight. I, I want the true bread. I want yeah. true bread. Amen. True bread. Yesterday we looked at the wine, the joy, gladness, celebration, but this thing of bread is something more, it's more basic than that. It has to do with just very sustaining of life. And sometimes in the Christian life, you just need to be sustained to where you don't perish. I mean, this is deeper and ba more basic. The, the wine speaks of something a little different, doesn't it? But, yeah. but the, this, this is staff of life. And the thing that sustains and upholds us. And there's times in the Christian life where you just, you just need bread. You need yeah. bread to sustain you, to keep you alive. And then Jesus saying, I'm there then too. I'm the bread. I'm the bread. Years years ago, I think I was just out of high school, I visited Washington Cathedral with my uh, my mother. And uh, it's a big building out there in Washington, D.C. area. And, you know, you go into these cathedrals <coughs> and these... In the same way over in Europe, there's spectacular things you look up into that cathedral. But then they took us down into the basement, and there was a, a section there where there was a rounded area. You know, you couldn't, you just saw part of it. He said, that's a, you could tell it was round. He said, that's part of one of the pillars that upholds this building. And I've thought about that many times since. In one way, I think of, I don't know, this isn't quite accurate, but I think of Romans, the book of Romans, kind of like one of those pillars. And Ephesians is kind of like looking up into the... Yeah. And it's hard-pressed to say which is more glorious. Yeah. And so here, I think, I think that's what the Lord's saying to us here. He says, I'm, I'm the bread. It's more, this is more basic. This is more foundational. This is more just keeping you alive. But I'm also the wine at the wedding. Mm -hmm. So he's the bread of life. <clears throat> he satisfies. And he's saying that he can satisfy us completely. Verse 11. Likewise also the fish, 
as much as they wanted. In verse 12, when they were filled, John 6, when they were filled, so I'm the bread of life, he that believes in me, that he shall not hunger. And um, when they were full, there was still an abundance left. They gathered up the fragments in verse 13 and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves. Now, Jesus could have made just enough to, to meet their need. You know, you, you still feel a little bit hungry and you take that last bite. But you know, some people make these feasts where you, where you, you have this feast sit there, and when you're satisfied, you're you're done, yeah. you know, and you know there's a whole lot more there. If you had the need, it would be there, and it's that's he's saying the same thing again as he did with this with these twelve these 180 gallons of wine. Abundant, more beyond. Twelve baskets, twelve large baskets of leftovers Mm -hmm. out of these five loaves and two fish. Abundance, satisfaction. So, are you satisfied tonight, deep down in your soul? If not, there's no reason not to be because He's offering this bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Amen. Amen.